0: Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen.
1: Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice at Lowenstein Sandler. And today I'm very pleased to welcome two guests, Rob Crescito, Chief Sales Officer of ARC Excess and Surplus and Janet Dreyfus, who's Associate General Counsel and Senior Claims Counsel at ARC. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about what lies ahead for the 2022 DNO market. As many of us know, policyholders have endured two years of a wild ride in DNO, both in terms of getting their renewals in place and also getting claims paid under those policies. So my hope is that Rob and Janet are gonna have good news for us on the horizon in 2022. And so with that, I'm gonna jump right in, Rob, and ask you, what are policyholders likely to see in 2022 in terms of premiums, self-insured retentions, and terms and conditions?
2: Well. I'm going to tell you, I think the last, clearly the last two years have been extremely difficult for the policyholders. And I think that really stems from a decade of rates that were from an insurance company perspective, not adequate, and some really serious coverage grants. And then we take that and we couple it with uh, an uptick in the number of securities claims, the severity of those securities claims. And I think we had a perfect storm brew in, in the DNO arena. And the last two years have really been from an insurance company perspective, setting or putting in place the right market for a correction that enables them to sustain profitability. Cause you know, that's they're in the business to make money. So, and they weren't making money. for for the last decade and they finally caught up to them. So I think over the last two years, we've seen significant increases in premiums, significant increases in retention, limits management. We're not seeing big towers of insurance anymore where companies are putting up 10 and $15 million blocks of insurance. It's on difficult risk. It's not uncommon to see a major insurance company put up two and a half million. So I, I think what we could see is more of that from a pricing perspective. I think the days of 15 to 25% premium increases are behind us in most cases. You're still going to see those big increases on the difficult classes of business where there's limited competition, like, and we'll talk about this later, but like crypto space or large unicorns that are potential IPO candidates where there's not a lot of availability of capacity
1: are we starting to see newer entrants into the DNO market that may help to fuel some competition and some better
2: rates for policyholders? Yeah, so uh, over the last 2 years there's been uh, at my current count 16 new entrants into the DNO space. And where I think you're going to see probably the most benefit for policyholders are going to be for those insureds that have stacks of d insurance or towers of DNO insurance because these new entrants, you know, why are they coming in? They're coming in because it's an opportunistic play on their part. There's good rate now. The retention levels are good. So they're jumping in and saying, hey, I can make some money in this space, but where are they going? They're going on the excess. So they're targeting those, those excess layers where they feel they can make money in that capacity coming in is driving down some of the bigger increases we were seeing in the excess space. Unfortunately for the policyholders, I still do not see these new entrants really coming in from a primary perspective. They don't have the policy forms yet. Many of them don't have the staff to adequately underwrite a primary. But what we are seeing is, because they're coming in on the excess and putting pressure on the excess, we are seeing those existing longer-term excess insurance carriers starting to pressure down and put some heat on the primary carriers because they want to maintain their relevance and stay on these towers. So that's good news for
1: policyholders. That's good. What are you seeing on renewals in terms of policyholders being probed on COVID-specific risks? Is that a, is that a passing fad or are you still seeing that policyholders are going to have to answer a lot of questions about supply chain and, and how COVID impacted their business?
2: You know, from a from and o perspective, it could be a passing fad only because, you know, I think underwriters are starting to, to get their arms around what their concerns are from like a supply chain issue or a financial disclosure issue of an insured and how the pandemic is affecting them. But I think there are some ancillary management liability issues that are are going to take center stage, like, for instance, on the employment practices side, we have a predominantly remote workforce that is eventually going to come back into the physical office. And I think there's going to be some issues in terms of who comes back, what the requirements are, or do you have to be vaccinated and what. The legal ramifications are going to be there. And that could stem up to the C-suite in terms of, you know, potential board liability.
1: Yeah, I think also there's some interesting developments, like particularly in New York, there's a lot of regulation around posting employment positions and things like that, and, and whether companies are paying attention and complying with that will be another potential risk area there. So Janet's going to take us on a deep dive into the claims activity over the last couple of years in DNO, but I've got a question for you about claims through the underwriting lens, which is has the claims activity across all of these coverage lines over the last couple of years impacted rates and the appetite for risk in the DNO space? And by that I mean, you know, we've seen a slew of cyber claims, we've seen a slew of Me Too claims, we've seen a slew of securities claims. Is that impacting how DNO carriers are willing to write and what they're willing to price at for these policies?
2: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, especially public companies, DE&I, right? So it used to be check the box. Now, any real good insurance company that's underwriting primary insurance is taking a long, hard look at what companies are doing in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. For instance, they want to know that real money is being spent on implementing the right practices and procedures and, and, and making sure that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I can tell you that, you know, had, having had a conversation with one of the major public DNO writers just recently, when they address this in the underwriting calls where the insureds are discussing their risk with the various insurance companies, when D E and I comes up, if it's glossed over, like, oh yeah, we're 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 looking, you know, we're really taking good care of that. Now let's go to the bottom line here. Our numbers are if it's glossed over and it's not dove into as though it were a major consideration of the board, they're not getting quotes from them. They're not getting the right quotes from them, that's for sure.
1: Well, that's that's great to hear, actually.
2: All right. So are there particular
1: industries that remain challenging to place DNO coverage you know, for example, we've got a number of clients that are getting into the cannabis space and we've seen some real challenges in getting them D&O coverage. So have you seen that in cannabis and are there other industries that you can identify that are particularly hard to place right now?
2: Yeah. What's hard to place? Well, cannabis for sure. Uh, we could go dive into that in a second. Crypto, anything crypto related is extremely difficult to place. Large unicorn type private companies. In the tech space, are extremely difficult to place, and why? Well, they're IPO candidates, they're potential VSPC yeah. D- uh, merger candidates, and th- they're making representations to the street about their financials, about you know what they're making representations that are being used in proxy statements that are being relied on by shareholders. So, what would be traditionally a hey a normal private company risk is. Now, what those bigger unicorns are are really being looked at hard on the crypto space. It's kind of a bad stigma that crypto has in terms of it being maybe used for like, you know, uh, evil empires for money laundering. Or or just recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this week where the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, is was kind of hinting towards there being a, a federal SEC regulation of the crypto industry. And I think until that industry is regulated, there's going to be some real challenges in terms of insurance companies being able to play in the space. And like in the cannabis space, which is not federally legal, that has issues and concerns of DNO insurers as well, because it's, it's difficult to place and. Also, there's no real reinsurance availability in that space. So, you know, these, if, if an insurance company is going to write cannabis, crypto, chances are they're doing it net. And that's a concern in and of itself for them.
1: Yeah. And I think they have a different board. I think in, both in crypto and cannabis, you have people who have great ideas and have found people to give them a lot of money to invest in their company. They may not have all of the familiarity around compliance with regulatory issues and, and that sort of thing. All right, well, that's that's a great overview of what's going on in the underwriting world for DNO. I want to now pivot to uh, you, Janet. You've been in the trenches battling for claims for probably twenty five years, maybe longer. What are you seeing in terms of the trends for DNO claims currently, and and what do you see coming down the pipe? You know, talk to me a little bit about the the uh, SPAC craze and. And is that going to make you super busy over the next couple of years dealing with the claims that are going to have flowed from the 2021, the year of SPACs?
3: Well, what I'll say is claims are alive and well, and I really haven't known a time when they've slowed down. So they're very active now. Obviously, the terrain is, you know, forever changing a little bit. So I think the headlines this year were that securities class actions were the percentage of claims had lowered as compared to 2020 and declined by 34%. But I think uh, everyone has to keep in mind that, you know, statistics are statistics and can be skewed. And I I say that in the sense that it's skewed a little bit, for example, because there was a a decrease in merger and objection cases. However, those we are seeing that those cases now are not necessarily being brought as class actions, but they're being brought on an individual basis. So they are still out there, just not being calculated in that statistic. But what we are seeing is that the securities class actions cases are being brought, they are still being brought and followed on by derivative claims along with that, which, you know, until the last couple of years were always deemed as, you know, tag along cases and not significant. And now they are significant in their own right on the defense basis as well as settlement basis. So we are seeing that. In addition, we're seeing the SPAC craze. The SPAC craze has brought its own litigation In 2021, there, I think, were 613 SPAC IPOs completed, um, and they raised about $162 billion in funding related to that. Um, That compares to 2020, uh, where I think the stats are that half of that amount was raised, $83 billion, and there were only 248 SPACs. What I will tell you is when there's SPAC litigation, right, that litigation gets commenced when there is an announcement of an acquisition, right? And, and the, the deal is going forward. And I think the statistic is for the coming year that there are 575 SPACs out there. Wow. And that are they are still waiting to announce those acquisitions. So we do anticipate that there will be litigation relating to those. And we have a very active plaintiff's bar in all of these cases. And what we're seeing is the plaintiff's bar is pushing extremely hard for larger and larger larger settlements in all of these. And they're continually looking to tap um, new towers of insurance, which is what's putting, you know, claims puts the pressure on underwriting, right, and on evaluating that risk. And so, for example, even on the SPAC litigation, we're seeing defendants being named not only from the new company that's emerging, right? But you're also seeing now D's and O's of the SPAC being named. So Yeah, they this are- is where
1: it's gonna get super naughty. You know, the SPACs, people are gonna to need to learn about capacity defenses and allocation for sure in the SPAC world. And Jen, one thing I did wanna note, you talked about how derivative claims have evolved over time and how they've become different and become more significant in the eyes of those who bring them. That's something remember when you're talking to Rob and you're doing your DNO renewal, you have eyes on that and you make sure that your sublimits follow all the way up through the tower and you're going to have sufficient money available because most policyholders don't realize that it's sublimited on the primary uh, at about five hundred thousand. And that's not going to get you out of bed in handling a lot of these a lot of these derivative claims these days.
3: Right. You do have those limits on those uh, derivative demand investigations and the internal costs associated with that. And you're right. Initially, those, and Rob can attest to that, right? We're only written as sublimits on the primary layer. And now you do have to make sure that as that tower goes up, that you have added coverage there. That's
1: why you have to have an excellent broker like ARC at the helm for you.
3: All right, Jan, tell me,
1: are you seeing any COVID-specific claims Um, And if so, what kinds are are coming down the pipe?
3: We are seeing them. In 2021, I'll tell you, you know, there, I think, were 42 federal class actions relating to COVID. And then there were derivative suits. And then there were also some enforcement SEC-related claims related to COVID. And the types of claims varied. There were claims, you know, originally based on the outbreak in the facilities, you know, with nursing homes and in cruise lines and, and in the meatpacking industry, if you recall, those were the initial litigations. And then there were some suits related to profit motivated COVID issues, which related to vaccine development and diagnostic information and what was going forward and what was being represented. What we think is going to happen, or what we expect now, is now I think you're going to see COVID related claims that go towards supply chain disruptions, right? Labor shortages and really see what's now is the outfalling I guess we could say or the what's coming out of the issue of covid and how that's affecting the companies on an economic basis and how they are handling it and we think we'll see dno claims arising out of that
1: So let me ask you real quick about the cost of defending these D&O claims. This is something that we talk about year over year over year. Carriers seem to complain a lot about the cost of these, but are they taking any meaningful steps? Have you seen over the last couple of years that they're taking any meaningful steps to manage the defense costs for D&O claims?
3: I think they're trying. And what what I will tell you is I think the statistic for defense cost claims, especially on these public company D&O claims, class action claims, They are running at 10 to $70 million for defense costs for these claims. And you can imagine that the settlements of these at the end of the day have to be a multiple of that, right? So the carriers are definitely paying claims and they are paying sometimes full tower losses that are significant on these claims. And they're feeling the pain on the defense costs. And that is because, you know, as the plaintiffs are driving it, it's very expensive to litigate and the defense of the claims are just as as expensive when those plaintiffs dig in and become very aggressive. What the carriers are trying to do is a couple of things. We are seeing them, first of all, attempting to deal with their insureds in what I'll say negotiating rate on defense counsel right, with the idea that it benefits everyone if we can contain those defense costs, there'll be more dollars there for the settlement or in the event of a judgment or an award. They are having some success in having direct negotiations with the defense counsels. I know that some carriers are trying to get 10 to 15% reductions on a whole, right, and trying to get reasonable, what they'll consider more reasonable costs. The other thing that I know that they are doing is they are trying to negotiate a flat fee for portions of the litigation. Interesting. And I- that some of the carriers are moving in to say, look, we want to negotiate a flat fee at X amount through uh, the motion to dismiss. And they're trying to do that because they are taking a pragmatic approach that, you know, obviously this is not a discovery intensive portion of the case and it can be quantified. So they are trying to do that so that they feel like defense counsel won't just continually bill and contain those costs.
1: We've seen that technique used when there's not insurance in place. So it's interesting to see that that's that the carriers are now going to try to leverage that same type of fee structure because our clients are used to that and, and have imposed that when they don't have insurance in place.
3: Right, so I think they're trying it, whether they're successful, we'll see. And I guess that also depends on the defense bar, right? And, and who, who they're discussing with. And part of it, look, the problem that the carriers also have is these are a lot of these claims are subject to very large retentions. So they really do have to work with their insurers on a mindset of trying to conserve those dollars, even when you're talking about within a two to five million or sometimes $10 million retention, where they don't really have a lot of control but they you know obviously can impact because with companies of those size retentions, if there is a claim, they are looking at significant tower and potential erosion.
1: All right, well, so we're just about out of time. So I'd like uh, each of you, Rob and Janet, to give me your best tip from the underwriting perspective and the claims perspective. What's the most important thing that a policyholder sh- should do in 2022? to get the best DNO policy and then Janet to get the maximum recovery on their DNO claim.
2: From the underwriting side, the best thing a client can do is differentiate themselves from everyone else. Get out of that bucket of peers and make sure that you are engaged in direct discussions obviously with your broker but with your DNO insurance carriers. Make sure you are emphasizing all the good work you're doing with respects to DE&I, with respects to your cyber practices and procedures and making sure you're overseeing, then having the best you know, safeguards in place to fight against ransomware attacks and, and, and the like. You really need to separate yourself from everyone else. And the only way to do that is to get in front of your insurance companies.
1: All right, Jen, I don't say this often, but you get to have the last word over Krishida. What do you have to say on the claim side?
3: loving it. Um, (laughs) What I would say is that I would encourage insureds to work with their carriers and the claims analysts on their cases. And I encourage that because the carriers do have a wealth of information as to these types of suits, what they're seeing in in the industry, the awards that are coming down, the judges, the mediators, how they are deciding, the jurisdictions where the claims may be brought all of which can ultimately impact the litigation and the cost of defense and the cost of settlement. So I think they need to really bring the carriers in, make sure the carriers are aware of what's going on. Obviously, there will inevitably be some type of maybe disconnect at one point or another in a litigation. But at least if everyone is talking, the carriers understand what the implications are on defense on liability, on the exposures, then at least everyone is having that conversation and can best work to conserve those limits or use those limits appropriately where needed.
1: That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Rob and Janet, for joining us today. D&O is uh, always an interesting topic to cover and there's nobody better to cover it with than our friends at Arc. So thank you very much for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowensteincom slash podcasts, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.